0: This morning, we return to our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we'll be in chapter 2. And I remind you that we have subtitled this marvelous letter that we call the book of Philippians, The Gospel Driven Life. The Gospel Driven Life. And we've chosen that title on the basis of this letter's thesis verse. A verse that I hope by now is burned into every one of your minds, chapter 1 verse 27, which says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. All of the exhortations and all of the instructions that Paul will give throughout the remainder of this letter are simply the exposition of this command. And so, the book of Philippians is a call to live a life worthy of the gospel, or as we have put it, to live a gospel-driven life. All of Paul's concerns for the Philippians' growth in grace are summed up by this overarching concern for them to bring the gospel of Christ to bear on every aspect of their lives. He desires that this precious congregation, these dear brothers and sisters who have been so close to his heart would live in, in a manner that is consistent with the implications of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on their behalf, that every facet of their lives would be shaped and driven by this gospel by which they have been saved. And after giving that general exhortation, Paul then begins to unpack what it will look like for the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see, at that time the Philippians were facing opposition from the outside world because of their commitment to Christ. And so living in a manner worthy of the gospel meant standing firm in the face of that opposition and continuing to preach the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile society. But in order to do that, they would have to be unified. An army of soldiers can't hold their own ground amidst opposition, nor can they advance behind enemy lines unless they fight as a unified body. And so, in the spiritual warfare of the Christian life, bringing the gospel to bear on our everyday lives means walking in the unity with one another that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. And so, at the beginning of chapter 2, unity becomes the apostle's concern. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But then we quickly learn that in order to experience this gospel-driven unity, God's people must also be characterized by gospel-driven humility. The only way we're going to be unified, verse 3, is if we do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind regarding one another as more important than ourselves not merely looking out for our own personal interests but also for the interests of others. And then in verses 5 to 11 Paul gives us the supreme example of humility, the perfect illustration of that kind of self-sacrificing humility when he calls us to have in ourselves this, this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. And so in verses 6 to 8 we studied in depth the humiliation of Jesus with a view to imitating the perfect example of humble service that we have in the Lord. If the highest of the high, the one worthy of all praise and all honor, could descend to the lowest of the low, to to the abject degradation of the cross, surely we can humble ourselves and lay down our lives in obedience to Christ and in service to His people." But this morning we come to verses 9 to 11 in which Paul celebrates the exaltation of Christ that followed his humiliation. You see the sorrow and the pain of good Friday gives way to the glory and the rejoicing of resurrection Sunday as Christ rises victoriously from the grave and 40 days after come is exalted to the right hand of the Father. But just like Christ's humiliation serves an illustrative purpose. So does this text. What we'll see this morning is that it's not only Christ's humiliation that teaches us and shows us how to live and minister in humble service of one another. Even Christ's exaltation will prove exemplary and will help us in our pursuit of gospel-driven humility. So let's read that text together. We'll read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." What we have in this text are three elements of the exaltation of Christ. Three elements of the exaltation of Christ. We have the reason for His exaltation in the beginning of verse 9. We have the nature of His exaltation in the second half of verse 9. And we have the purpose of His exaltation in verses 10 to 11. And as we study Christ's exaltation together this morning, it's my prayer that we would behold our God seated on the throne and that we would come. And adore Him. It's my prayer that our hearts would be filled with worship as we behold this exalted Christ in all of His majestic glory and that the sight of that exalted glory would give us fuel for our pursuit of humility and our battle against pride. Let's consider then that first element of Christ's exaltation, number one, the reason, the reason for His exaltation. Read verse 9 with me again. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. For this reason, or some of your translations will have therefore. Well, what is this reason? What is the therefore, therefore? It's there to causally link Jesus' display of humility to his exaltation. As God, he emptied himself. He made Himself of no effect by becoming man, taking the form of a slave. And as man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even though He never deserved to feel death's sting. And not just death in general, but He humbled Himself even to death on a cross, subjecting Himself not only to the pain and the shame of crucifixion, but also to the curse of God even though He never deserved to taste the bitterness of the cup of His Father's wrath. For this reason, Paul says, God highly exalted Him. So what we see here, illustrated by the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, is the truth of that general principle that was stated in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, that the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Jesus himself taught this principle on multiple occasions always directed at the prideful Pharisees. In Matthew 23 just before he pronounces those eight woes on the Pharisees and scribes, he instructs his disciples not to be called rabbi or father or leader. And he tells them that the greatest among you shall be your servant. And then comes the principle, Matthew 23:12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted." Jesus repeats this statement in Luke 18 as He concludes the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where the proud and self-righteous Pharisee leaves condemned in the sight of God. But the humble tax collector, beating his breast and begging for mercy, goes to his house justified. And Jesus repeats this principle yet again in Luke chapter 14 as He attends a banquet in the home of a Pharisee and sees the guests were all choosing the places of honor at the table. And so He tells a parable to illustrate this point. Listen to Luke 14 verse 8, Jesus says, "'When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, "'Give your place to this man,' and then in disgrace You proceed to occupy the last place, but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted." You see? Don't arrogantly choose the place of of honor and pride for yourself because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But choose the place of humility, Philippians 2 verse 3, with lowliness of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. And having chosen the way of shame and humiliation, you will experience the blessing and the honor of exaltation. And that is exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus. He humbly chose the path of degradation and disgrace. And for this reason God highly exalted Him. Now what's Paul's point here? Is is it simply to narrate the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it simply informational? No. Remember, as we've said, this look at the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ has an illustrative purpose in Paul's argument. He's called the Philippians to the kind of gospel-driven unity that can only exist when the members of a congregation are marked by a gospel-driven humility. And in order to stir them up to that humility, he calls them to imitate the supreme example of that humility, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But Paul doesn't stop with the example of Christ's humiliation. He carries straight through to his example of exaltation. He says that Christ's humility was the very reason for his exaltation. So Paul is encouraging the Philippians to pursue humility by entreating them to behold the glorious consequences of that humility. And that's such a wonderful principle for Christian living. I love this. Follow the reasoning here. The reason that you and I are tempted to be prideful, tempted to forego the path of humiliation and disgrace is because the recognition and honor feels really good. And we think we're going to miss out on that. If we're constantly regarding others as more important than ourselves and, and preferring one another in honor, serving humbly behind the scenes rather than stealing the spotlight, deferring to the interests of others rather than insisting on our own rights. We're going to miss out on how good it feels to be admired, to be vindicated, to be exalted. And Paul says, no way. No way will that happen. That's not how it worked out for Jesus. Jesus went to the very lowest place, death on a cross. And for this very reason, God exalted him highly, to the highest place, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name." Do you want real honor? Do you want real exaltation? Well, don't settle for the cheap stuff. Don't be so easily pleased by the temporary substitutes that the world offers. Pursue humility. That's where true glory is gained. I love that. Paul doesn't say, stop desiring to be exalted. Stop desiring glory and honor. He says, enlarge your desires for true exaltation. Deepen your desires for true honor and glory by pursuing the real thing. The real thing in God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is teaching us to fight the temptation to seize the pleasure of earthly glory and recognition among men by alluring us, by enticing us with the superior pleasure of heavenly glory and the recognition of God. You see, we are to fight the temptation to sinful pleasure with the promise of a superior pleasure. Calvin summarizes the point perfectly. He says, For from the most abject condition Christ was exalted to the highest elevation." Everyone, therefore, that humbles himself will in like manner be exalted. And he goes on to say, Who would now be reluctant to exercise humility by means of which the glory of the heavenly kingdom is attained? And you say, wait a minute. That doesn't sound quite right. You're saying that we should pursue humility for the reward of exaltation that will follow. Isn't that selfish? We should just, we should just obey for... You know, it's the right thing to do. We shouldn't obey because of the reward we'll get out of it. Well, many Christians have imbibed just that notion that if our obedience is motivated by the, the pleasure that we gain from it or the reward that it will bring, that somehow it's not real obedience. It loses its virtue. True obedience is disinterested obedience, they say. The problem is, God doesn't love a disinterested giver. God loves a what? A cheerful giver. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who keeps a stiff upper lip and disinterestedly grinds out his duty. No. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The notion that it's immoral to be motivated to do good because of the reward that will come of it has its origin more in Kantian and Stoic philosophy than the Word of God. And there are literally dozens of texts that we could turn to to substantiate this, but perhaps the clearest place this idea is supported is in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, so I want you to turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 11, it's there that the author of Hebrews defines faith itself, faith, the very cornerstone of the Christian life, as believing that God rewards obedience. Hebrews 11 verse 6, the author says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him." It is that belief that characterized the spiritual heroes in the hall of faith. They all obeyed because they believed that God was a rewarder of those who seek Him. We could go through all of them, but skip down just to verse 25 where the writer applies this to Moses. Who in verse 25 says, chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses fought the temptation to be satisfied in the passing pleasures of sin with the superior pleasure of the reward that is in Christ Jesus. And none of you reads that and thinks, oh, Moses is so selfish. No, you think Moses was a great man of faith whose heart was singularly devoted to the Lord. And if you skip down to verse 2 of chapter 12 there in Hebrews, we see that this was no less true of the Lord Jesus Himself, who, it says, endured the cross for the joy set before Him. It was the joy of gaining the Father's glory that He had always enjoyed for all eternity but had endured endured being without now for His thirty-year sojourn on earth that motivated Him to endure the shame and the humiliation of the cross. And Paul is holding the Lord Jesus out to us as an example, enticing us to forsake the passing pleasures of notoriety, of vindication, and the praises of men, and to consider the exaltation that comes from God after the suffering, after the humiliation, to be greater riches. So rather than seizing a plastic crown in this life, set your sights on a greater exaltation, A greater inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, and which does not fade away. Don't sabotage your own growth in grace by depriving yourselves of one of the most powerful motivators for obedience, the joy set before us. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 is a key text for us here. The Apostle Peter writes... Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that or so that He might exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves so that He might exalt you. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Pursue humility for the express purpose of obtaining the true and greater exaltation that comes as a reward from God. And so the major lesson from this text comes to us in this first point, the reason for Christ's exaltation. Look with me now at the second element of Christ's exaltation, number two. It's nature, the nature of His exaltation. Verse 9 again, for this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. The phrase that the NAS translates highly exalted there is the Greek word huperupsao, which is a, a compound word that Paul invents in order to adequately express the magnitude of this exaltation. You could translate it super exalted. The Father did not simply exalt His obedient Son to a greater position than He had before. That's not so much the point of this phrase. This, the point is that He exalted Him to the highest position anyone could ever occupy to the position of greatest honor and supreme power." And that's only re-emphasized by the phrase, "...and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name." This phrase is, is best understood as the manner in which the Father exalted Jesus. In other words, you could translate this, "...God highly exalted Him by bestowing on Him the name which is above every name." And the word translated bestow there is the familiar Greek word charizomai from charis which is the normal New Testament word for grace. It means to give as a gift or to give freely or graciously. It's the same word used in Romans 8.32 when Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over uh, for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? It has this idea of abundant and gracious blessing. So as a reward for Christ's humility-driven obedience, the Father graciously bestows upon the Son the name which is above every name. Now in that ancient Near Eastern culture, a name was so much more than simply a way to tell people apart, to distinguish one person from another. One commentator writes that a name was... A means of revealing the inner being, the true nature of that individual. And we see testimony of that throughout the Old Testament, don't we? You know, Jacob is born grasping Esau's heel, right, which is exactly what Yaakov means in, in Hebrew, to grasp the heel. And he in Hebrew, to grasp the heel was an idiom that meant to cheat or deceive. And that's why when Jacob cheats Esau out of his birthright, Esau says in Genesis 27, 36, "'Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times.'" Or even just in a general sense about a name in 1 Samuel 24:21, Saul begs David not to destroy his name from his father's household. In Jeremiah, the enemies of Jeremiah plotted to destroy him, saying, "'Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more.'" And so, when Paul says that the Father bestowed on Jesus the name above all names, he's speaking here of the supremacy of Christ's dignity. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, like we heard last week from Peter, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says that when when Jesus had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they." So Calvin writes, the meaning, therefore, is that supreme power was given to Christ and that He was placed in the highest rank of honor so that there is no dignity found either in heaven or in earth that is equal to His. You say, wait a minute, was that ever not true of Jesus? Didn't He remain God even in in the humiliation of His incarnation? Yeah, He did, absolutely. Jesus didn't renounce or empty Himself of His deity or any of His divine attributes at His incarnation. He didn't give up His essential equality with God, but He did give up the dignity of that authority by leaving the continual worship of the saints and angels in heaven and by veiling the full expression of His glory and of His deity. In other words, Jesus didn't cease to be God while here on earth. But He did cease to be recognized and worshiped as God by all of His creatures like He deserved. And as a result of that willingness to be humbled, the Father once again granted Him the rank and dignity of station commensurate with His nature by exalting Him to the place of supreme authority and universal dominion over all creation. The Father answered Jesus' prayer in John 17 where He says, Father, I've accomplished the work that You've given me to do. Now glorify me again together with the glory that I enjoyed before the world began. And for a few moments I just want to celebrate with you Christ's exaltation by looking at a number of texts that show what that supreme authority and universal dominion look like. The first step in Jesus' exaltation was the resurrection right the author of life humbly submitted himself to death even death on a cross to bear the curse of the father's wrath against the sins of his people the one who had life within himself john chapter 1 verse 4 the one who had the prerogative to give life to whomever he wishes john 5:21 that one humbly released his grip on his own life he was forsaken by everyone even by the Father Himself in order to bear the curse in our place. But the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. Three days later He rose from that grave victorious over death, demonstrating that the Father was satisfied by the sacrifice that the Son had made. And as a faithful high priest, Jesus had made propitiation for the sins of His people. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus was always the Son of God from all eternity, but the resurrection was the Father's special declaration that though Jesus had to cry out in His humiliation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that He was no longer forsaken, that there was Reconciliation in the Godhead because of the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. The God man had defeated death and by his resurrection was once again declared to be the Son of God. Now, not only was Jesus resurrected, but he then ascended from the earth back to the Father, where he reigns over all things at the Father's right hand. Listen to these texts. Before his ascension, Jesus himself declared in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen: "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." Hebrews two nine says, "Jesus, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor." Acts five thirty and thirty one, Peter says. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior. 1 Peter 3.22 speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. And finally, Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 22 The Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things into subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. How glorious is that? And friends, Christ's exaltation includes not only His resurrection... Not only His ascension, not only His coronation and present reign at the right hand of the Father, but it also includes the reality that He is coming quickly and will soon manifest the fullness of that authority when He returns in judgment to set up His kingdom over all the earth and as His Father had promised Him in Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 to claim the nations as His inheritance and the very ends of the earth as His possession. He's coming and on that day... He will no longer be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is a fearsome, conquering king with a passion for justice and a holy hatred of all that is unrighteous. And so Paul declares in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The Apostle John describes that moment of His coming as Jesus breaking through the clouds on a white horse, judging and waging war in righteousness, Revelation nineteen fifteen says, from His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And For those of us who love Him, who trust in His righteousness and His atoning sacrifice on our behalf. For those of us who long to see Him vindicated and exalted, to see Him receive the worship and the glory that He is due, that day is going to be one of the greatest rejoicing. That very same passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, after describing the judgment of the wicked, describes the rejoicing of the righteous. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, When He comes, when Jesus comes, to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at, among all who have believed, we're going to marvel. When He comes, we sang, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. And that brings us to the third element of Christ's exaltation. We've seen the reason for His exaltation was His prior humiliation. And we've just celebrated the nature of His exaltation, including His resurrection, His ascension, His coronation. And as we looked forward to His second coming, we come now, number three, to the purpose of Christ's exaltation, namely universal worship. Universal worship. Look at the text. God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." The purpose of this super exaltation of Christ the place of highest authority and rank and dignity, the purpose of the Father bestowing upon Him the name which is above every name, is that in honor of the name conferred upon Jesus, every last sentient being will bow in submission to and will openly acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And it's here that this wonderful hymn of Christ's humiliation and exaltation reaches its climax. Throughout verses 9 and 10, Paul has been speaking about this name, but he's never actually said what the name is. He said that the Father exalted Christ and bestowed on Him this name. And He said it was the name which is above every name. And here it says that at that name, or better rendered, in honor of that name, every knee is going to bow. So what's the name? Now, you might get the idea from the way this sentence is translated that the name is Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. But I want you to notice that the text doesn't say at the name. Jesus, it says at the name of Jesus. The Father didn't bestow the name Jesus on His Son at His exaltation. Mary and Joseph gave Jesus the name Jesus at His incarnation. So, this isn't the name which is Jesus, rather the name above every name is the name that belongs to Jesus. Well here we are again. What's the name that now belongs to Jesus, that the Father bestowed on Him at His exaltation? Jesus has a lot of names. Is it the Son of Man, Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the First and the Last, the Faithful and True, the Beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased? Is it Christ, the Messiah? Is it the long-awaited prophet? Is it our great High Priest? Is it the King of Kings? No, it's none of those. Finally, the almost unbearable suspense in the text is broken and the Apostle Paul tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's unmistakable that this is the focus. The word is even brought forward in the beginning of the phrase in the original language to show this extra emphasis on Lord. And of course the word Lord is the Greek word kurios and it means master, sovereign, one of ultimate authority. It's a title of majesty, of sovereignty, of honor and supreme authority. Pastor John in his commentary writes, whoever is Lord is over everyone else. He has absolute supremacy and the right to be obeyed as divine master. Such is the Father's exaltation of His Son. Jesus submitted Himself to the lowliest of places and God exalted Him to the very highest position and rank, the one who was equal with God, but out of love for the Father and love for us, His people, did not count equality with God as something to be held on to or grasped or seized, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a slave. And as a result, Paul wants us to know that the slave has now been exalted as lord the slave is now once again shown to be master of all with all the divine rights honors prerogatives of the of the sovereign ruler of the universe teaching of the exalted lordship of christ is absolutely central to the faith of christianity i don't understand why anybody would want to deny that glorious truth as something that is not going to the very heart and essence of christianity Salvation is defined in terms of faith in Christ's resurrection and confession of His Lordship. What does it mean to be saved? How can I be saved? Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What's the implication? If you do not confess Jesus as Lord, you will not be saved. In fact, the scholars tell us that the confession Jesus is Lord is probably the earliest of Christian confessions. One of the earliest ways of identifying yourself with Christ in His church is to say, Jesus is Lord. And we see evidence of that even in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't mean that unbelievers are physically incapable of mouthing those words. He means that only one indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God can be a true believer. And confessing Christ's lordship is so central to true Christian faith that Paul treats the two ideas as if they're interchangeable. Confess Jesus as Lord, truly believe in Christ. So any notion of a Christian faith that can receive Christ as Savior without also submitting your life to Him and obeying Him as Lord is an absolute farce. There is no such thing as no lordship salvation. There's no lord if there's no lordship. No savior if there's no lord. And the implications of this resounding note of Christ's lordship wouldn't have been lost on the Philippians. Remember that according to Acts 16:12 Philippi was a Roman colony. And as we've discussed throughout our study of the book, the Philippians were very proud of their Roman citizenship. Very proud to be Roman citizens, so much so that Paul has to remind them that they are citizens of heaven before they are citizens anywhere else, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But there was another character in Rome who was laying claim to the title, Lord. Any idea who? Caesar. In fact, the confession, Caesar is Lord, was just as widespread and just as central to identification and participation in the Roman Empire as Jesus' Lord was to the church. And so when Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, he knows what he was saying would be absolutely shocking. He was driving his stake in the ground. He was letting the Philippians and every other citizen of the empire who would read this letter know that Jesus, not the Roman emperor, was the exclusive ruler of the world. But that wasn't all. This gets really good. When Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 45. Turn there with me, Isaiah 45. Starting at the end of verse 21, God says, And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And then He issues a worldwide worldwide invitation to repentance, verse 22. "'Turn to Me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by Myself, the word has gone forth from My mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to Me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of Me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength.'" Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to Yahweh. That, that's our passage in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. But in Philippians 2, Paul applies that to Jesus. Now chapter after chapter in this section of Isaiah, Yahweh is continually declaring His own supremacy over all the other supposed gods of the nations. He declares His own uniqueness by saying over and over again, listen to these, I am Yahweh, Isaiah forty-one thirteen. I am Yahweh, that is my name, Isaiah 42.8, as if to say it's my name and nobody else's. Isaiah 43.11, I, even I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 44.6, I am the first and I am the last, there is no God besides me. He can't make it any clearer that it will be to Him and Him alone that all worship goes but then Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Well, if there's no God and no Savior apart from Yahweh and Jesus is the God and the Savior who will receive all worship on the last day, then Jesus is Yahweh. And in fact, that is the ultimate sense of the term Lord in Philippians chapter 2. That is the name that is above every name, Yahweh." Now we've, we've spoken about this briefly before, but uh, many of you have noticed that when we came to the word Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament text there, that I said Yahweh and not Lord. And that's because in the Old Testament everywhere you see Lord in all capitals, it's an indication that the Hebrew text originally had the divine name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am, Yahweh. But the Jews were so superstitious about breaking the third commandment that they would never pronounce the divine name. They they figured that not saying Yahweh's name at all was better than taking the chance of taking it in vain. And so when they would read the Scriptures and when they would copy the Scriptures, sorry, when they would read the Scriptures, when they came to the divine name in the text, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would substitute the word Adonai, the word Lord. So, English translations for reasons that I've never been able to figure out, have followed that tradition and have translated Yahweh as Lord in all capitals. But that's not all. You see, the Jews have another name that they use that they replace Yahweh with. And that name is Hashem, Hashem. It means literally the name, Hashem. So this was another way of showing reverence to the divine name by never having to pronounce it, just say to the name. In fact, to this day, if you speak the name Yahweh in the presence of a devout Jewish person, they will be offended. So when Paul says that the Father highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, every Jewish person who heard this letter being read would have gasped. They would have said, no, he wouldn't dare. And then the next phrase, so that at the name which belongs to Jesus, and they would have said, no, don't you do it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And they would have rec- recognized Isaiah 45 and they would have said, No, don't you dare associate the name, the ineffable name of God, with that blasphemer. That Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul's doing here. That is the effect that this confession is supposed to have. Not only is this Jesus the exclusive Lord of the world against all claims of the lordship of Caesar, not only is he the God-man who took the form of a slave and is now exalted as the sovereign master of the universe, this Jesus, this son of Mary from the no-name city of Nazareth who was mocked and despised and spat on and abused, this Jesus who suffered the shameful fate of death on a cross is Yahweh Himself. Because God has so highly exalted Him, there is coming a day, Paul says, when the whole world is going to make that same confession. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The bowing of the knee, that's the classic expression of reverence and subjection. It represented, a demonstrated intense religious devotion. It's a mark of extreme abasement and submission, the commentators say. And confess means to declare openly or to publicly acknowledge. My friends, there is coming a day when everyone will openly acknowledge Jesus' sovereign authority and right to rule this earth, a day when everybody will publicly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I mean everybody. Paul says those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, those who are in heaven at the time of Christ's coming would be the saints of all ages who have died and have gone to be with the Lord, along with the angels of the host of heaven. Those who are on earth would be all those who are alive at His coming, both the redeemed and the unredeemed. And those who are under the earth refers to those who have died outside of Christ, who are already perishing for their sins in hell along with the demons who were their unhappy companions in that terrible place. Now, for the saints, dead and alive, and the angels, this will be a happy bow of adoration and true worship. It will be the glad confession that they have been making all their lives. For those of us who have already bowed in repentance to the supreme and saving Lordship, of the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who have forsaken our sin and our own efforts and claims to be righteous, who in faith have casted ourselves on the merit of Christ alone and who have confessed Him as Savior and Lord, all that day is going to be the delight of delights. The bowing of the knee and the confessing of the tongue will be the great consummation of all our labor, of all our prayer, of all our suffering, of all our faithful obedience and service to the Lord. That happy confession that will ring from our lips will be the joyful victory cry of an army of triumphant soldiers in the processional march of our conquering King. All but for those of you. I want everybody within the sound of my voice to take your hand and put it on your knee right now. Go ahead, do it. Don't be afraid. For those of you who remain dead in your sins, for those of you who continue to trust in your good deeds, even in part, to admit you into the holy presence of God, for those of you who think too much of your own righteousness and your own goodness and too little of the holiness of God, for those of you who continue to cling to your pride, to your greed, to your drunkenness, to your sexual immorality, to your jealousy, envy, bitterness, selfish ambition, for those of you who refuse to be ruled, for those of you who refuse to bow the knee and submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ and to the authority of His Holy Word, for all of you who have arrogantly declared, I am the Lord of my own life. I answer to no one. Don't tell me what to do. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. My friend, that knee that you're holding in your hands is going to bow. That tongue in your mouth that you have used all your life to blaspheme the name of the God who gave you life, it's going to confess. And that will not be the praise of an adoring worshiper at long last. Paul's not speaking about a universal conversion here. No, together with the demons and the rest of the unbelieving world who mocked the Lord Jesus Christ, who belittled His glory, who slandered His church as narrow-minded bigots who just can't get out of the first century, primitive, primitive men, those who disregarded the Scriptures as the word of Neanderthals and who regarded the gospel of Christ crucified as foolishness, to your utter shame and horror, you will make the despairing admission of a conquered enemy and will bow in resentful submission to the sovereign king whose power you can no longer deny. I can barely stand to imagine the horror at that moment, when it finally dawns on you in, the fullness, in fullness that everything that you based your life on so confidently was a sham, I can almost hear you cry with utter bewilderment and disbelief, I was wrong. I was wrong the whole time. I was so sure, but I was wrong. And then it will be too late. Friend, be reasonable. You're going to have to bow the knee. Whether it's today in a day of grace or whether it's on that terrible day, you're going to bow the knee. Bow it now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And miracle of miracles, this sovereign king stands yet willing to receive you. Despite all of your sin, despite all of your stubborn refusal, up until this point, the door of salvation yet remains open. Abandon your sin and abandon yourself. Run to Christ and be saved. And for my dear brothers and sisters who, along with me, eagerly await The day when He comes in His glory to set up His kingdom and rule the earth in righteousness. Remember the point of our passage in its context. Remember that Paul is speaking about the exaltation of Christ at this particular time in his letter in order to entice us to a life of humility. This is the kind of exaltation that God bestows upon His faithful servants who choose the path of humble service and obedience. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might lift you up in due time, in due time. How can you not be humbled in the presence of such majesty in light of the exalted glory of Christ? How can you still seek glory from men? How can you continue to exalt yourself via selfish ambition and empty conceit? How can you continue to insist on your own rights and privileges in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? How can you continue to to hold that grudge with your spouse? Dear friends, let the glorious gospel of Christ's lordship, which we have celebrated for the past hour, let this gospel compel you to the kind of Christ-like humility that leads to the true Christian unity that Paul prays for us and calls us to in Philippians chapter 2. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any consolation of love? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Is there any affection and compassion? Well, then make my joy complete by being unified. Let's pray. Father, do that work in our hearts. Cause this people to be a, a humble and united people, one who with one arm, one voice, as one man, take this gospel into the hostile society of 21st century America. Father, I do pray that you would quicken the hearts of those who are dead, that you would grant spiritual life. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet and, as, and though they condemn you, They can be washed whiter than snow. You're going to have to bow the knee. Bow it now. Father, grant eyes to see. Grant a heart to understand. Grant ears to hear. Shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ into the hearts of those who are yours and yet have not come home. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. To speed the day of your coming to receive the glory and the honor and the exaltation that we long for you to see to have we know you have it in heaven but we know you deserve it on earth and we pray to see that that is our greatest joy our greatest delight not to exalt ourselves not to see ourselves exalted and magnified and pampered with the claim but to see you glorified and magnified would you make our joy complete by exalting yourself to the highest place of glory even on this earth before our eyes and father prepare our hearts to worship again with the gathered assembly as we go across this patio to worship in spirit and truth in honor of the name conferred upon jesus that jesus is lord he is yahweh it's in that wonderful name that we pray amen for more information about the ministry of the grace life pulpit visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com Dot .com Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit All rights reserved